Hola mi gente. The moment you've been waiting for is finally here. My brand new book, Financially Lit, is officially out. And I can't wait for you to get your copy. Inside this book, I'm bringing you culturally relevant and relatable personal finance advice that will allow you to finally feel seen, heard, and understood. Whether it's the guilt you feel from being the first person to make it while members of your family are still struggling, or the way that financial trauma manifests itself in negative and limiting beliefs around money, Financially Lit is here to guide you through it all. Just a few years ago, it was almost impossible to find personal finance books written for first-generation wealth-building Latinas. We have been forced to navigate the complicated world of money with a bunch of money books written by old white dudes who don't understand what it's like for us first-gen kids. But that stops right here, right now. Inside Financially Lit, you will learn how to set boundaries with your familia, with your dinero, create and pass on generational wealth, diversify and increase your income, protect yourself from financial abuse, navigate the complicated relationship between amor and dinero, invest like a white dude or better, and so much more. You can get your hard copy and audiobook version of Financially Lit at financiallylitbook.com and make sure to join our email list so you can find out when I'm stopping in a city near you for the Financially Lit book tour. See you soon. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So how you analyze a short-term rental, and I'll say this up top, I like to analyze properties, even if I'm thinking of them as a short-term rental, as a short-term rental and a long-term rental. I want to at least break even as a long-term rental in case regulations do change or just what I want to do changes. I want to make sure that I have this backup plan. So I like to at least break even as a long-term rental. When you're looking at, at short-term rentals, you can use AirDNA or Price Labs or click around on Airbnb and VRBO and look around the area. Look at their prices, look at their calendars, and you can make some assumptions about how often they're booked. And you can look at what the Price Labs dashboards, they'll tell you what occupancy rates are. And short-term rentals, it's all about something called ADR, average daily rate. And whatever your average daily rate is, you multiply that by your occupancy, so your number of days per year, and that's going to be your top line revenue. You take what you're what you're bringing in, you take your operating expenses off the top, then you take your fixed expenses, and then you're left with basically your net income, and then you would subtract the mortgages from that to get your cash flow. You're listening to Yo Quiero Dinero, a personal finance podcast for the modern Latina. I'm your host, Janice Torres, award-winning Latina personal finance expert. I didn't always have my financial shit together, but when I started looking for POC-friendly personal finance podcasts, I couldn't find any. And so Yo Quiero Dinero was born. On this show, I'll show you how to make dinero, how to keep your dinero, and most importantly, how to make it grow. Each week, I'm connecting you with the most brilliant minds in the world of money and business, so you can learn about investing, entrepreneurship, and building wealth. The best part? I'm dishing up all this knowledge with a sassy side of sazón. So if you're ready to be poderosa with your dinero, you've come to the right place. Let's dive in. 
Before we hop into today's conversation, I want to remind you to follow us on social. If you're loving this podcast and you want more community, you want to find out more about our events and all the stuff that we have going on behind the scenes, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and everywhere else you love to hang out on the internet. If you're loving this podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review if you listen to us on Apple. It's the easiest way to share our podcast with people that you know and love, and it helps us get discovered by amazing listeners like you. So take a moment, leave us a review, share us with your friends and family, subscribe so that you never miss an episode, and make sure to check out our blog, YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com, where you can sign up for our email list and you'll never miss an episode. Plus, you get exclusive invitations to our live events, special discounts for our digital courses, and as always, our best personal finance tips and advice to help you be poderosa with your dinero. Thanks for listening. Now, let's get into the episode. Lauren, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you here after we connected. Was it at FinCon? Yes, it was at the little after party they had that was sponsored by a crypto company that I'm pretty sure is bankrupt at this point, but we're not going to talk about that. Uh, (laughs) Super excited to have you here. You are a real estate influencer on social media and you specialize in short-term rentals, which I'm super excited to talk about with you because something I've been personally interested in and a lot of folks that are in my circle are also thinking about it too. So thank you for being here and, and sharing your knowledge with us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. And I think you're probably right about that crypto company. <laughs> they shall remain unnamed, but um, yeah, it's been a wild world in the world of investing in general. And I'm sure Real estate is no exception. So let's have you do an intro. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do, and then we'll dive into your background in this real estate investing space. Absolutely. Happy to. So my name is Lauren Keen Amond. I am at Adulting is Easy on Twitter, and that's also the name of my personal finance podcast. And I am a real estate investor. I'm 33 years old. I am married. My husband and I have been together eight years, married for four. He just turned 30. And so at 30 and 33, we reached financial independence, mostly through real estate, but we also have a good chunk of money in our retirement accounts and index funds. And we are financially independent, which means our assets pay for our expenses right now, but we're working full-time jobs, still working on kind of lifestyle at this point. Okay. So there's so much to dive in just with that little bit of an intro. First off, I want to know what your money story was like growing up. Did you come from a family of real estate investors? Like, what did you learn about money growing up? That's an interesting point. My grandparents on both sides were into real estate. My grandma and grandpa on my mom's side bought a mobile home park with 13 mobile homes the year before I was born. And so growing up, I certainly knew that that was their job. My grandparents on my other side, they did some kind of guru thing way back when, and it was no money down real estate. And so growing up, they had five rental properties where they put no money down, you know, in Tampa. And so there's real estate investing on both sides. My parents, my mom, actually, when she was 22, bought her first house. When she was 24, bought her first rental. My dad's parents threw her a party with a cake when she bought a rental. And then my dad said, we're never buying another one. So that's (laughs) my dad. Like, I don't know if he's like scarred, but I think his parents, they were doing a lot of work themselves. I mean, no money down. They were five kids, single income, really kind of bootstrapped. So I think he just got really burnt out on that when he was a kid. And even though my mom loves real estate, 
he was like, no, we're going to have one. It's good for tax write-offs and things like that. So they had one rental property my whole life. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so you see this growing up. Was this always part of your plan of how you were going to build wealth or was it something that you were kind of turned off by because you had such an up close and personal experience with it, right? Because that's what I found. It's like some people grow up with parents who are entrepreneurs and they're like, I'd never want to do that. And then some are like, yes, I want to go all in. Yeah. So my dad has worked at the same company for almost 40 years and my mom has been a homemaker. And I felt like maybe I'd have one rental property like them, but that was the dream. I always knew I was going to work. I didn't really think I was going to have kids and stay home, but that was my idea. My husband and I are both going to work. We're going to save 20% of our income. I mean, I knew my dad had a 401k and he has a pension and I knew they were saving. So that was my plan. And then kind of spend the rest, work till I was 65 to the point that I bought my first house in 2012 when I was 22 went under contract at 22, closed at 23, bought my second when I was 27. And this is like the golf course community, Feather Sound, actually in Clearwater, golf course community, nice home, big bathroom, nice closets. I had a BMW and I was like, yeah, I'm going to sell my first house and buy this one. And my dad was like, this is weird because it's really <laughs> out of character. I guess he really wanted me to have one property now that I'm thinking about it. But he said, do everything you can to keep that first one and rent it out. And I said, I need to borrow $28,000. I thought he would say no. He's like, okay. Because I only had about that. And I wanted to put 20% down. And I only had really 10%. And that gave me the 20% down. And I paid him back, I think, a year and a half later. So that's wow. how it started. Then I went deep. And I don't think he expected that he accidentally created the monster. That <laughs> Okay. I want to dive into that. But first, I'd love to know what your professional career is in. Yeah, I'm in training. So learning and development. I've sold training since 2014, but I got in the training space in 2013. So celebrating 10 years really in my career this year. And so selling training, it's business to business, complex sales. And I got into that very purposefully in 2014 when I was 24 because I wanted to make more money. I started in accounting and I was like, I'm going to try sales. My dad's in sales. My grandpa was in sales. I'm going to try it. And I was always the kind of kid in the group projects in school that did all the work and everybody else got all the credit. And I thought sales was a great way for me to do all the work and get all the credit and make all the money myself. <laughs> I love that. And sales usually come with like nice fat commission checks that you can probably use to buy a real estate. Exactly. Big ones. And at the first five years, the way it was structured, I was making in October, November, December, 20 or $30,000 each month. Holy yeah. shit. I can see how that could come in, in handy when you need to make those down payments. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. So you have your first property, then you acquire a second one. You said by the age of 27? That's when I got, yeah, the second primary. So I moved out of my first and rented that one. So I had one rental, one primary at 27. And you were born and raised in Florida? Yeah, born and raised St. Petersburg. Y'all are a rare breed. I've met very few like native born Floridians. And I always find it interesting because I feel like a lot of folks are like, no, nah, there's no opportunities in Florida. You got to leave. But I feel like there's always opportunities everywhere. You just got to find them. And you found them in the real estate market here, right? Are all of your rental properties in the state of Florida? They're all in the state of Florida. They're all in the West Coast. I have four properties that adds up to 14 doors. So eight are here in the Tampa Bay area. And then we have a six unit building a couple hours north on US 19. 
Yeah, you got in way before the madness of the pandemic because now I can imagine the market's changed, but I'd love to start with that first or that third property, I should say. Kind of walk us through your acquisition journey when it comes to your rental properties. That was a wild one. And that was where we took a turn. Before that, my husband and I were traditional sort of normal types of people. And we were following the traditional path. We were going to have jobs. We were going to spend everything we made except for what went in retirement accounts. We knew we should have 401k Roth IRA. That was it. There wasn't talk of brokerage account. There wasn't talk of real estate investing except for the one I had. We were done. Like we were good. We were going to work. We thought we could still retire early. But when we ran the numbers, we figured 55 at best, which don't get me wrong, that is early. But I was shocked. He was almost making six figures. I was making really solid six figures, saving a good amount. And still that meant we had we had to wait till 55. And I my heart dropped, my stomach dropped, my heart stopped when I figured that out. And this is someone who has, I have a finance degree. I have a business finance degree from the University of Florida, but I hadn't really thought about the personal finance side of it. And once I ran those kind of rough calculations, I said to my husband, we have to move. I said, we are paying $25,000 for this mortgage every year, mortgage taxes, flood insurance, regular insurance. And you need to make thirty to $35,000 to pay $25,000 after taxes. I said, that's insane. No wonder if we got rid of that, we would be set. I was like, instead of retiring at 55, it'd be like 35. Mm-hmm. I'm not kidding. And so I was like, I want to move. I want a house hack. And that's how I'm going to get rid of that, which means buy a property, live in part of it, rent other parts out. That can be getting a roommate, as simple as that. Or I was looking for something with maybe an above garage apartment, house and above garage apartment. And so that's what we set out to do. And I had that conversation with my husband in January 2020. Okay. So I'd love to know how you found out about the financial independence movement too, right? Because that's where the rabbit hole begins for a lot of us. (laughs) Yeah, it must have been when I bought that second house and rented my first one out. I got into bigger pockets because I decided, okay, I'm going to be a landlord. I should read some books on this. And it's not too far away in the Google machine from reading about real estate to, you know, rich dad, poor dad, and eventually the your money or your life book. Basically, you, you get into the financial penance, retire early movement. And that's when my mind was blown because primarily what that teaches you is retirement is a number and not an age. And that was all part of this realization that my husband and I had to house hack. It was the most straightforward thing to do. We had to get rid of our mortgage payment by getting some rental income. And that's what did it. And it is. It's a rabbit hole. And it really, for me at least, shook the foundation a little bit because I thought everything I grew up believing is not right. And that's not my parents' fault. They were good savers. Like I said, they had the one run property, you know, single income, three kids. They did really well. But my dad had a pension and 401ks were kind of new in the 80s when he was starting. Roth IRAs didn't exist. So people thought you work at a company and then you get a pension and that's how it works. Once you get rid of a pension, the math really favors the financial independence retire early movement because you're kind of not hanging around for anything except maybe health insurance. But even then, now you can get that on the open market. Yeah. Okay. So walk me through that first house hack, right? So you have now two primary homes that you decide to put up for rent and you buy a multifamily unit. Yes. We bought a commercial bed and breakfast. 
What? So again, <laughs> so, so we were looking for a house with what's called an ADU, an accessory dwelling unit. I was looking for a garage, an above garage apartment. And I thought maybe our mortgage will be 1700 bucks. Maybe we'll get a thousand for that. Start killing that bill, if you will, over time. We ended up in a small town in Pinellas County called Tarpon Springs. We have a really nice bike trail here. And I really wanted to be on the trail because I really wanted to be able to ride my bike from my house. I was in a car accident a few years ago. I don't have a great back. So this idea of lifting my bike, putting it on the car, or just riding around my neighborhood, there weren't really options for me. So we started looking all along that trail, going to dinners and making sure we liked these different towns. And that's how we ended up in Tarpon Springs. And when you're in Tarpon Springs, there's a basically a tourist draw because there's a huge Greek culture here. We really, at some point, somebody brought a bunch of Greek folks over from the Mediterranean because they knew how to harvest sponges. Because back in the day, you actually washed yourself with like an actual sponge not a there were, we weren't making sponges in like the 1940s so because of all of that rich culture and history there's a tourism draw here and so I meant to have a long-term tenant that's what I already had one thing led to another and we found a bed and breakfast that was for sale three bedroom two and a half bath house with two accessory dwelling units one 500 square foot studio apartment studio condo Two car garage that was closed in, but it's a studio. And then a sort of like a she shed with a bathroom. And we thought, okay, those two ADUs don't have washer dryer. So maybe people should just be here kind of a short amount of time. And it was already a bed and breakfast and we had the tourism draw. And so we knew we had to put a lot of money into the house. And so I had enough money from some of those commission checks to make the down payment on the property, but not enough to do this over $100,000 renovation. So then I sold that second house that I had bought to pay for the renovation. And we lived in the accessory dwelling units while we remodeled that. And that's that's what our 2020 was. That's what we did during COVID. Holy moly. Okay. So you just literally dove into the deep end. You're like, I'm not going to do this in a way that feels simple. I'm just going to go balls to the wall. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. <laughs> it was not safe. It was not a safe thing to do to buy a bed and breakfast during COVID shutdowns and think you're going to remodel a 1901. So it was 119 years old at the time. I had done two bathrooms and not even me. Like I paid somebody to remodel two bathrooms. And I'm like, yeah, no problem. I can do a full remodel of a 1901 home and a full yard design. And I budgeted 160 grand. We paid 285 and we got 5,000 in closing cost assistance. I budgeted 160 grand for the renovations and I figured our after reno or after repair value, our ARV would be about 420,000. So I knew we were going to be about 440 in and it was only going to appraise for 420. But, and that actually is what it appraised for, which is weird. I was kind of dead on and we did 161. So we kind of nailed the budget, but I didn't care if we were a little under appraisal for what we had into it because we're going to be living there. And then all of a sudden, that and that payment was, I think, $1,700. We ended up doing a cash out refi later, but $1,700. And during like, especially January, February, March, April, which is peak season, just the studio does $3,500, $4,000. And so we knew even if off season was terrible, that was covered. So I didn't mind being a little underwater at first. And so you're using this property as short-term rentals, is that correct? Yes. So you're not running it as a traditional Airbnb like that you're a hotel manager and doing all this. No, no. We decided to, for a couple of reasons, 
we were able to get primary home residence financing by not taking over her. She had a commercial business license, a commercial cooking license. We chose not to take those things over so that we could benefit from the residential loan, the residential down payment, even silly things like the residential garbage service versus commercial, all of those kinds of things. And so we still have all of that. We do have our short-term rental license like you would if it was your primary house anyways. And so yeah. we did get that license. So, And we did, frankly just didn't want to have the concierge hands-on experience. We're both working full-time remotely, so we are around, but we didn't think we could cook and clean and handle all of that for people. So it, that does get confusing, especially we're members of the Chamber of Commerce. So people do sometimes call and that does get confusing for them and we have to explain it was a B&B. Now it's an Airbnb. And people sort <laughs> yeah. of get it. Okay. So you acquired this property. Then what's next? So at that point we had, I had actually sold my first house. So we had a, we had a duplex, the very, very first one. I had sold that for a duplex and I had sold the second one for the renovation on this house. So we had two properties. So we had two long-term rentals, two short-term rentals, we added this camper, which I'm sitting in, which you can see. I added this camper and this camper is actually airbnb as well. So we had our house, two accessory dwelling units in the camper, and then our housing payments were killed. They were killed off. And I was like, we're good. This is awesome. We've got 50% equity or payment $1,700. This is great. My husband's like, hey, let's cash out refi and do more. And I was like, really? all right, I guess we can. And so rates had gone down. Our rate was 365 and the rates had gone down. So we were able to do a cash out refi. We weren't able to get our whole $150,000, $160,000 back out, which would have been called a burr, a buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat is what that's called in the real estate world. So we didn't get our whole reno money about, but we got $100,000 back out and our interest rate dropped from 365 to 2.99. And so then we had $100,000 and we bought a duplex in Pasco County, which is a little north of here, which was it's 3,000 square feet. So it was huge and it's on the water. And we paid $385 for that. I love 85s. Bought this for $285, then bought that for $385. We bought our six unit for $585. Um, it's a magic number. I know. I was like, I need a 485. But anyways, <laughs> so we bought this duplex and it was on the water, which I thought was really cool. You don't find a lot of like places that were built as duplexes on the water. So I thought this was awesome. It was huge. 3000 square feet for a duplex, two bedroom, two bath on both sides. And it appraised for 395 when we bought it. So we bought that in June, 2021. So we bought in June, 2020 is when we closed on the bed and breakfast. The renovation was completely done in December, 2020 went live January, 2021. So only six months later, we had gotten that money out and bought a duplex. It didn't need nearly as much work, floors, yard remodel, things like that. And that's where we took it even a step further because we started renting out our house <laughs> And when it booked, we started going to that duplex or when that duplex booked, we would be at our house. So that's when we became Airbnb nomads, which is why I'm in a camper right now because we're still doing that. Okay. So you are basically living in whichever property at the moment is not occupied. Well, I mean, you know, it makes sense because they're all, you know, within the same sort of vicinity driving distance. But before we dive into why you made that decision. I want to know, how do you find these deals? Is it literally just signing up for Zillow and you just wait for something to pop in your inbox? Yeah, kind of. Really? Actually. So the bed and breakfast, and this is going to sound bizarre in the world that we're in now, it was on the market. It had gone on the market in August and we closed in June. 
the following year. So that's a really long time. We had been under contract for a couple of months. We renegotiated three times. We had a terrible inspection. Then we had a terrible structural inspection. So we went under contract for like 330 and ended up buying it for 285 with 5,000 in closing cost assistance. So that took a little while. So let's say August to April, we went under contract probably. That was a long time. Two things that were a problem with this property. It was listed on the income section of the MLS not the residential section. And that matters. She wanted to sell it as an actual functioning business, which I understand. But a lot of regular people wouldn't see that. That's number one. She didn't have it on Zillow. She didn't have a sign outside. And she didn't even have the address on the MLS. And so I must have been on some MLS alerts. I think I was on some MLS alerts from a realtor. And so that's how I found this place. So that actually, that one was a little under the radar the duplex and our six unit, and then the next duplex that we just bought were all done different ways. But basically the MLS is how we found that duplex that we're talking about, that one on the water. It had been on the market very, like not very long, just a couple of days. And I pounced on it. I was like 385, you get two 1500 square foot places on the water. I am here for it. And so you can find, you can find deals that way. You kind of have to look at them differently. So for example, the bed and breakfast is a great example. It was a bed and breakfast. It was a functioning commercial bed and breakfast that needed a lot of work. I think very few people walked through that place or saw it and thought, this can be my primary residence. They thought, I don't want to run a bed and breakfast. So we looked at that a different way. The duplex on the water, you know, it's in Pasco County. You know, it's maybe up and coming, but it's not kind of in Tampa Bay proper. And so that didn't have much going for it. The six unit apartment building, which we can get to, we bought that six months later, that was all long-term rentals. And there was no long-term rental management company on the island, but there are short-term rental management companies. And my uncle lives in that county. So we were looking at the property. What if we did short-term rentals? And what if my uncle just helped us manage it? We already know how to do that. So if you start looking at things just a little differently than other people look at them. Another way is we saw a property recently where they had kind of closed in the garage to create a big open space, big living room. And we thought, what if we put a wall here? You could make this a whole nother unit. But some people just don't see things that way. So if you're looking in, in my husband, and I call him, it's a Lauren and Eric deal because nobody's going to see it this crazy way that we do. So yeah. One of the things you have to take into account is how different like zoning laws can be state to state, like landlord tenant laws. I know when I was a landlord in New Jersey, I found out after the fact that like New Jersey is one of the worst places to be a landlord because there's just so many laws that restrict you from like evicting somebody because of X, Y, Z. And it's just not a a landlord tenant friendly state. Whereas I feel like Florida is absolutely like different, right? The zoning laws are probably a lot less stringent. Yeah, I had the benefit of being born here. And so I didn't have to look outside of this market. Did have the family influences, like you said. I think my grandpa back in the day would just tell him to get out and lock the door. It's not really like that anymore. Sorry, grandpa. I know you're up there. Maybe maybe not happy about that, but that's very important. And then when you're talking specifically about short-term rentals, hugely important to understand regulations and zoning laws. We had at this property a lodging zoning because it was a bed and breakfast, whereas a street over the minimum is six weeks. Now people are doing it. You'll see Airbnbs all over this place. None of them are doing it legally, probably like we are. Got it. Okay. So 
I would love for you to break down for us, how does one analyze a real estate purchase that is specifically for short-term rentals? What are some of those uh, key indicators that we should be thinking about? Because I think everybody's just like, buying real estate is always a good idea. It's always a good deal. And you're always going to make money. And I promise y'all, that's a lie. Okay? Because I didn't make any money when I was a landlord. I was breaking even if I was lucky. And sometimes that happens. I think you're going to be more likely to make money if you're doing short-term rentals, but that is a job. So take that into account. I have one, two, three, four long-term rentals right now. I spend almost no time on them. I spend almost all of my time on my short-term rentals. I feel like I'm paid well for it, so I don't mind. But just know that it's really, really a job. It's almost not even a side hustle. You know, you can side hustle long-term rentals all you want, but short-term rentals is a job in and of itself. I just have two full-time jobs. So how you analyze a short-term rental, and I'll say this up top, I like to analyze properties, even if I'm thinking of them as a short-term rental, as a short-term rental and a long-term rental. I want to at least break even as a long-term rental in case regulations do change, even though it's pretty unlikely in Florida because we're pretty pro-tourism, or just what I want to do changes or whatever. I want to make sure that I have this backup plan. Or let's say another pandemic happens and we have to shut down, or the neighbors get really mad about the short-term rental. I mean, a lot of things can go down to make you want to switch. So I like to at least break even as a long-term rental because I am still bullish on Florida. I think we will have appreciation. I'm not going to factor that into my analysis, but I feel like if my analysis says I'm breaking even, there's going to be some gravy there on the appreciation. But when you're looking at at short-term rentals, you can use Air DNA or Price Labs or click around on Airbnb and VRBO and look around the area. Look at their prices, look at their calendars, and you can make some assumptions about how often they're booked. And you can look at what the Price Labs dashboards, they'll tell you what occupancy rates are. So in short-term rentals, it's all about something called ADR, average daily rate. And whatever your average daily rate is, you multiply that by your occupancy, so your number of days per year, and that's going to be your top line revenue. I would say from there, you take 25% off the top as a rule of thumb for utilities, cleaners, supplies, linens, soaps, shampoos, all of those kinds of things. Take 25% off the top. And then you would have your, those are your operating expenses. And then you have your more fixed expenses after that, your interest and your taxes. Your mortgage is not something that technically factors into what we call a cap rate in real estate. Your mortgage kind of comes after that and is factored in in cash flow. So you take what you're what you're bringing in, you take your operating expenses off the top, then you take your fixed expenses, which could even include your you know, licensing. You're going to have licensing that you wouldn't have otherwise. I have a bookkeeper, which I wouldn't have if I just had short-term rentals. So there are some things that you only have because they're short-term rentals and that you would take out after your operating expenses. And then you're left with your basically your net income. And then you would subtract the mortgages from that to get your cash flow. And so far, what I'm seeing is I keep about 25% of what the top line is, is okay. about what I'm seeing. Is that normal? Like, is that kind of a key indicator that you're doing well as a short-term rental owner, or is there like a wide variance just based on where your property is? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It varies a lot. I don't know about the cash flow particularly. What you want to look at with short-term rentals or all, all rentals really is cash on cash return. So take the duplex, for example, just round numbers. Let's say we paid 400 for it and we put 20% down and then put some money into it. So let's say our $100,000 into it. What I make that next year, that property does about 40,000, take 25% off the top of that. And then that's what I sort of, you know, keep, right? So I would take that number. So $40,000, take 25% off the top for utilities, cleaners, supplies, that's $30,000. My mortgage there is 2,700 mortgage taxes and insurance but it's a duplex. So I would take only half of that as my expenses. And then you go down and you get your cash flow. And then you take your cash flow and you divide that by your $100,000. And that's your cash on cash return. And for a regular rental property, your cash on cash return is seven, eight percent With my short-term rentals, I'm getting about 25 to 30%. Holy shit. So I can see why you'd want to go down that route just because the exponential return on investment versus I feel like long-term tenants kind of mimic the stock market sort of when you're thinking about long-term rentals, maybe. That's a kind of like a dividend. It's just the yield is it's just smaller. And especially at first, and especially before you get anything paid off. And that said, I don't have anything paid off. Like I said, I have four properties. I think we have maybe about 40% equity in them because we've acquired them all in the last few years. So we're definitely in a stabilization period. As we're bringing new units on board, the first ones are paying for those. As much as I'm saying we're keeping 25%, really that's going immediately back in to set up more units. And so it takes a handful of properties in a handful of years to stabilize, especially with long-term rentals, a normal long-term rental cash flow per door. So per rental, I mean, a good one's like $200 a month. And so you almost have to get your CapEx, your capital expenditures, your roof, your furnace or HVAC, water heater, those kinds of things. You almost have to get those out of the way until you are really cash flowing even that $200 per month. So it takes a while. My husband and I were just talking about this because we just added another property and we've got some CapEx to do with others. I think it'll be probably two or three years until we're completely stabilized, which is another reason all of our living expenses are covered, but it's another reason for us to keep working, keep putting money in index funds, get a good cash reserve up again and things like that, really kind of put down our foundation, maybe our fortress, or you might call it a moat, to make sure that we can handle whatever comes and stop expanding because then all the money that we're bringing in just ends up going to that new place. Got it. Okay. So is there a final number in your head as far as how many doors you want to own? I think I'm there. I was there actually before these last two, but um, (laughs) this last property, this would be our second duplex. This last property that we just bought, it was from our neighbor and we heard they were about to list it. And so we made them an offer. So we did this off market deal with them. So it sort of fell in our laps. We weren't looking in this case. So this kind of goes against the MLS thing. But once you start investing in real estate, we did a pretty public renovation here. So the neighbors all knew that we were real estate investors and we were into this. 
the more people know, the more people will come to you like, hey, I'm selling this place or, you know. So sometimes if you just kind of get started, even with those MLS deals, other ones will come to you. But so this one kind of fell in our laps a little bit. So we took it. It should bring another one to $2,000 a month. Again, once we hit that stabilization period. So I think we're here. We did top line last year. It was basically eight short-term rentals and four long-term rentals last year. $250,000 was our top line. So all of our bills were covered. And I mean, I mean, everything, food, utilities, mortgage, we don't have car payments, but gas, everything was covered last year and we were still expanding. So we're working truly for lifestyle at this point. And, and that's sort of what our brokerage account and our retirement accounts are for extra things, vacations when we need to purchase cars and things like that. But once we're here, I think we'll be cash flowing 75 to $100,000 in a couple of years. And that's enough when your bills are covered and you're not saving for retirement anymore. That's a big chunk. And that's something about the fire movement that I think people maybe forget. They're like, oh, but I make $80,000 now. How can I live off of less? I'm like, well, you are already, you're saving a ton. Just remember, you're not contributing to your 401k or any of that when you're, yeah. when you're done. Okay. So let's go back to the Airbnb nomad lifestyle. So why did you choose that instead of just picking like one unit to live in of all of the properties that you own and just staying put? My husband wanted a boat. When we bought the place on the water, he really wanted to spend time there with the boat. And where we are in Turban Springs, we've looked, we've been under contract on some on the water properties. It's just expensive. We just- Yeah. It's a flood zone. Yeah. It's just, I think the payment is going to be between five and $6,000 a month. Jesus. A lot, right? Yeah. Crazy. And that's, you know, the yeah, flood insurance is bad. Even on stilted homes now, flood insurance can be $3,500 a year, which was unheard of even two years ago. Used to be like five or 600 bucks for stilted homes. So we were like, that's so we buy this duplex, which is in Pasco County. So it's about 25 minutes north of where we live. And it's really a night, really open and airy and new. You know, once you are in this 1901 home for a while, you're, you're like, man, that's real nice looking, real, real smooth walls, real flat floors. It's just <laughs> so. So we bought this place on the water, and we wanted to spend time there. Also, our house had been a bed and breakfast. We put a hundred thousand dollars into it. It looks beautiful. Original floors that have been refinished. Gorgeous kitchen. Nice master bathroom. We thought it was already a bed and breakfast. We already have the license. We already have the systems, processes, cleaners, everything set up here. We have a property management software. We cre create mutual blocking for those two. And so when one books, we'll go. And we had our rate very high at our main house in Tarpon, the one that was the bed and breakfast. We had our rate high. We needed a five-day notification before they could book. They couldn't instant book it. We had to approve it and a six night minimum. So we wouldn't leave for anything less than a week. So it sort of gave us an opportunity to quote unquote, go on vacation to our little on the water property up North. And it also gives us an opportunity to do work while we're there. So we were just there recently. My husband fixed an electrical outlet that wasn't working, hung some string lights. We've gone there before and spent a week and put up a bunch of blinds or curtains. I cleaned the rugs when we were just there, touch up paint, things like that. So once we started doing that, it actually made it easier to maintain everything because we didn't have to make specific trips to do that. Mm -hmm. And so I'm listening to the fact that you're doing like this maintenance work on your own. And the first thing I think of like, why aren't you outsourcing this? Because who the fuck wants to be painting walls and shit? 
I don't. So I don't like paint. Paint. Like if the stairs are scuffed, I like I touch it up. Okay. Okay. Um, no, I hate. I hate painting. I hate painting Same. so much. I painted one room. So I just told you I have fourteen doors. I painted one room last year, and I wanted to die. It was terrible. I don't like it. My husband, though, likes this crap. It's unbelievable. He's an engineer and his brain just works that way. And he's like, well, somebody else isn't going to do it as good as I would. And blah, blah, blah. <laughs> God, it'll be like more. It's Yeah, I know. My dad was an engineer, too. It's really annoying. <laughs> but, like, he, My dad would totally agree. But he likes doing that stuff. And it really is cheaper. With the six-unit apartment building, like I said, my uncle, who is a handyman by trade, that's what he's been doing. He lives in that same county. My grandma does too. Our cleaner's really good there. So if anything needs done there, like I guess pop the toilet seat off recently. I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> and so my uncle goes over there and fixes the toilet seat or the smoke detector was going off one time. So he went over there and he actually changed it out. We think there was maybe a moisture problem that was causing it to go off. Somebody put a sponge down the garbage disposal the other day. I wanted to remove the garbage disposal. <laughs> my husband wanted my uncle to fix it. So my uncle went over there and fixed it. So for anything that's acute like that, especially with that property, my uncle goes and fixes it. Because the one property is so new, we redid so much here. We haven't had a lot of issues that are very quick. Not repairs so much as maintenance. The difference really is maintenance is something that is planned. So we can go do it. It's not an emergency. We don't have to rush over and touch up the stairs. So the maintenance stuff, we don't really mind. We go change out filters, vacuum out, washer, dryer, well, the dryer line, you know, vacuum under the fridge, get because stuff gets sucked up there. You know, just little things like that that we do because we're there anyways and it's it's no big deal. We just haven't felt the need to outsource those things yet. Sometimes like repairs, some like toilet was running one time when we were on vacation skiing and we had a handyman for that. Our water heater went bad about a year and a half after we put it in so it was under warranty but just the unit so we have a plumber that we called for that so we got this new property the electrician will come and you know we need like we need because this new property is 1909 i never learned but we need an outlet there we need an outlet there so we have people that we use but my husband for the most part really likes takes pride in it likes doing the maintenance things he has a ton of tools he thinks it's interesting he thinks it's fun i think if he didn't have his full-time engineering job he would do everything because he, he can do floors. He I think he would love to do a bathroom or a kitchen. I like them to get done quickly. So I yeah. don't, I'm not really for it. But, you know, he just likes it. But no, I'm with you. I was like, if it was just me, I would not have short term rentals. I would only have long term rentals. They wouldn't have washers and dryers. They wouldn't have garbage disposals. They wouldn't have dishwashers. And it would be just tile floors, just as indestructible as possible. And I would have a handyman for sure. And I would do nothing myself. I've told him that this is a partnership business with me and him. I handle really managing the cleaners, scheduling all of the systems, guest communications. And he handles really like a general thing. He handles all the maintenance stuff, but also like if a TV breaks or something, <laughs> I'm like, can you talk to them about how to get that Roku working? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love the the partnership that you guys have. You're playing on each other's strengths. I'm curious, do you follow the policy of screening all of your Airbnb uh, guests or do you let anybody instant book depending on the property? We let everybody instant book except for, like I mentioned, the main house, mostly because like last year, speaking of FinCon, we didn't have that. We had it instant book and it instant booked while we were at FinCon. And so FinCon got done on Saturday. Somebody was checking in Sunday. So, you know, had I not an instant book on, I might not allowed that happen. But no, we let everybody book who wants to. I do have some of the settings on with Airbnb that say has to have good reviews and has to have ID verified or 
or what have you. We do, like I said, we have a property management software. It's called Owner Res. And so we do all of our guest communication ourselves. That's a single point of truth that pushes to VRBO and Airbnb. And through that, we're allowed to take security deposits. So I take $100 security deposit, except for our two bigger units or $250. So $100 or $250, no big deal. And they sign a renter's agreement. It's like slightly aggressively worded, but it's kind of like, here's the quiet hours. Don't use glitter. Don't use karaoke. Don't let raccoons in or whatever. Just stuff like that. So we feel like if we're letting people instant book and they know they have to sign this renter's agreement to put in a security deposit when they book, it's in our house rules. So if someone's going to go through that and accept that and put in a security deposit, we're fine with it. We've only had one party, one bad guest where we had to kick them out and keep the security deposit and keep everything one time. Of course, we were skiing. We were away. So we had to kind of get those people out from afar. But for the most part, we have good guests. And we have this is a philosophy that I have is the smaller places. Even in our main house, when we leave, we have one bedroom lock. So it's a two bedroom. That duplex is a two bedroom. Everything else is two bedroom or one bedroom or studio or this little teeny tiny camper. You're going to prevent a lot of BS purely from not having as many people there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I've read recently across social media that some folks are kind of over Airbnb because some folks are asking them to clean up after themselves and go and change the sheets and blah, blah, blah. Do you find that guests are giving you a harder time on the things you're asking of them? That's a good question. And there's a lot going on with that. I have a conspiracy theory that there's hotel lobbyists behind all of the PR. I believe it. So I used Especially to- here in Florida. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> when we first started in January 2021, I had no instructions. I only had the two accessory dwelling units or this camper. They didn't have washer dryer or dishwashers. There's no asking people to do any of that stuff. And people would reach out to me. Hey, is there anything I need to do? Hey, is there anything I need to do? Hey, is there anything I need to do? And that happened so many times that I literally created guest instructions so they like felt like they had something. So it started there. I have guest instructions. I tell people to leave the sheets. Maybe we need to treat or something leave the sheets. I asked them to start a load of white towels and it is asked. And it says our cleaner would appreciate it if you start this load of white towels. And the reason is I already said our places are pretty small. So a two bedroom place that's 600 square feet, she can get that done quicker than those towels dry by the time you put them through the wash and towels take forever to dry. I don't care how quick dry your towels are. So that actually literally saves her time. So I put that as an optional thing and say it's really just helps our cleaner. And the garbage, same thing too. I say, please take out your trash. This allows our cleaner flexibility to clean as late as the following day. Because that's really what's going on. When I'm asking you to start towels, it's to help the cleaner. When I'm asking you to take the trash out, it's so that my cleaner can say, hey, I noticed we don't have a booking tonight. Do you mind if I come tomorrow? I can say yes, because I know it, there's not nasty garbage in there smelling the place up. But we did have one person recently who really left the place pretty bad, just garbage in the garbage can, but also overflowing chip bags everywhere, banana on a cutting board with the knife half cut up, like sitting there, pizza box in the oven, all of their food in the fridge. So let's say you buy like some milk. You got to pour that down the drain. And throw it out. Like That's what happens when you leave a vacation. And they didn't do any of that. And so I kept their deposit. And it says... And they're under screaming. If you don't follow check on instructions, I'll keep your deposit. I don't do that if you don't start the white towels. It's not like that. I do that only in this is only the second deposit I ever kept. First one ever for cleanliness. The first one was the party. 
which was funny in and of itself. But they said their reasoning for why they did that was we paid you a cleaning fee. We shouldn't have to do any of those things because they paid you a cleaning fee. And I think people just need to understand the cleaning fee covers them cleaning your shit out of the toilet. Mm -hmm. It covers them cleaning the kitchen. It covers them cleaning the shower and the floors and doing all of that laundry. Anybody knows who has multiple beds in their house and does towels, it takes a long time. And it's a lot of work taking that crap off the beds, off of the pillows. And you've got to do everything every time. It's a lot. So they go do that and they do the floors and they sweep and they mop and they do that every single time. And there's so much dusting. And then once a week, they've got to go through and do something extra, whether it's the baseboards or the blinds or the oven. There's all these extra things that they're doing. But that's what you're paying them for. You're paying them to be a cleaner. You're not paying for them to be a maid. And that attitude really bothers me. And I just wish that people understood more when as a host, when I'm asking you as a guest to do something, for the most part, it's literally to help my cleaner and help her have a better day and a better week. Yeah. Okay. So not only are you building this real estate empire with you and your husband, but now you've actually decided to share your journey, show up as a personal finance influencer, podcast host, et cetera. So tell me the origins of that. What made you want to share what y'all were doing? Yeah, it's it's an interesting story. When I was selling, first selling training, I was selling business finance training. And they asked me as part of that company to write a blog on personal finance for personal finance month or something, which I think is April. And so I started writing and it then became 10 pages long. And I was like, all right, this is not one blog. This is many blogs. I saved that. And then I started over and wrote them like a really short one. And I thought, well, if I ever, I'm really passionate about this. I bought my first house at such a good time in 2012 that I had good equity right away. And I had this good sales job that I naturally started trying to manage my own modest wealth with purpose. So I was really passionate about it. So I knew that, but I filed that away. And then in 2018-ish, I started started the blog, started the Adulting is Easy blog and just started typing things. And it really was a result of people asking me questions, the same question over and over. And then I could just send them that. Not that I don't want to talk to you, but like I already covered it. And then my sister, who is much younger than me, got interested in it. And for a little bit of background on me and her, there's three kids. I am 33. My brother's 31. My sister's 20. And so we were 11 and 13 when this kid was born total accident. My parents were in their 40s. Best thing ever, total accident. And that same year, my brother started doing drugs. And it started probably very innocent, like pot and stuff like that. I'm not calling pot a gateway drug. Don't DM me about that. I'm just saying that's kind of how it started. But an 11-year-old shouldn't be doing any drugs. And you could just tell, very, I could tell at least very early on, like, this is not normal. This is not a normal amount of experimentation. And it wasn't too long until he was addicted to pills and alcohol. And just so you know, I have asked him if I'm allowed to share the story. And he has said yes. Just want everybody to know that. So he became very badly addicted. And so my parents were very focused on him. And also, to some extent, obviously focused on the baby, literal baby diapers, teaching her everything, how to live, how to do everything right. But I was also there for all of that. So I was there when she swallowed her first food. I don't know what it was, but her eyes were really big. She was looked at us very accusingly. What did you just put down my throat? I was there when she said her first words, took her first steps, first learned to use the potty. I taught her to tie her shoes. I taught her to ride her bike because my parents, you go from what they say, man to man, you go to zone when you go from two to three kids. And then they had this extra complication of having an addicted child and trying to figure out how to not be an enabler, but also how to not have him die 
And it was really like that for many years. And so I've always been someone who teaches my sister who she can come to. We have a very, very close relationship. I can't imagine a closer relationship, even if she was my twin. And so we're very close. And so I started with the personal finance blog. And then I started just talking to her about it one day. I was like, are you getting any of this? She's like, about 50%, but keep going. This is important. I was like, huh. And so then the podcast started, the Adulting is Easy podcast started as me sort of reading the blogs that I'd written to her and her reacting and her learning. And so that's the origin story of Adulting is Easy. I love that so much. That's literally why I started Yo Quiero Dinero too, which is I, I feel like I kept having the same conversations over and over with people. And I'm just like, can I just send you a podcast episode? <laughs> and here we are. Okay. So you mentioned now that you are talking about this, you're sharing your journey. What do you think is the biggest myth that is stopping people from getting into real estate investing? That it takes a ton of money. In some ways, as easy as buying a share of stock on Robinhood, there are some places that do that. Lofty is one, Fintor is another, where you can buy sort of a share of real estate. Even buying an actual property can be very affordable. If you are buying a one to four unit, you can use an FHA loan and put 3.5% down. Think about that. That's incredible that we can do that. And you can get a 30-year fixed interest rate. This is something that they don't have in other countries at all. I have some Canadian friends. They're very jealous. The other thing is that people should be wary of or be thinking about. They're like, well, I don't want to have roommates. I'm like, well, do you have a roommate now? Or, you know, I don't want to live that close to other people. It's like, well, are you in an apartment now? Buy a duplex, buy a triplex, buy a quad, get the social security numbers of your neighbors because they're your tenants, run their background checks and pick them. I mean, I can't think of a better way to know who's living around you if you're running all these background checks on people. So at least start that way. Put a low amount down. Even if you do a conventional loan, you can do 5, 10 or 15% on these multis. Buy that, get that all settled, have this person paying your mortgage or most of it let's say you may be coming out of pocket instead of 2500 a month 500 a month that's awesome take that other 2 grand and then start investing it you can put it away from our real estate or if you're like my dad you could never do that ever again and put it in the stock market and start whether it's get your emergency fund in place you can do the 401k you can do Roth IRA you can do brokerage account whatever it is but that frees up all this extra money that you can be investing and that, I think, is the biggest myth out there that it's really expensive. And if you're going to start buying investment properties, yeah, the interest rates are higher. You've got to put 25% down, but you don't have to start there. Start there with a primary residence and make it an investment property at the same time. And you can do it for, I mean, 10, 15 grand, no joke. And so when you use an FHA loan, from what I understand, you have to live in that property for a year and then you can go and buy another one, correct? And then you can convert that to a rental, like a full rental? Absolutely. And you can keep the FHA loan on that first one. You can't then get another one. You can only have one FHA loan at a time. But that's something that I think people should understand too. If you're just willing to move and keep, move and keep, move and keep, your interest rates are going to be incredible. You don't have to refinance out of those loans. If you are buying a primary residence, if you're getting a primary residence loan, your intent has to be to move in. You should probably live there. You should probably really move in. You should probably really do it for a year. I've always wondered who verifies this. <laughs> Nobody that I know of. Right? It's like, it's not like the mortgage company is going to come by and be like, hey, knock, knock, knock. Just wanted to make sure you're still here. I'm sure there are stories and we may get more of them. We may get more of them now that interest rates are so high. And there's also this thing that people do. This is a little off topic, but they take their home that they move out of 
they keep their primary loan on it and then they transfer it to an LLC and then keep paying it from the LLC. That's technically a sale and they can call it due then, which I, I sort of wonder if we're going to see more of that because they're going to be like, yeah, I'm calling your 3.5% mortgage due. Do you know why? Because I want to go get a 7%. Maybe that's a little conspiracy theory. I've talked to a lawyer about it. He thinks I'm insane. He thinks you have a better <laughs> chance of getting bit by a shark and struck by lightning on the same day. But there's some stuff like that. But yeah, I don't think there's a lot of regulation, a lot of oversight on that. Yeah. Okay. So how can folks work with you? Do you actually take on clients now to help them find these real estate deals? I do. I do real estate coaching. My website is realadultingiseasy.com. There is a coaching page there. If you want to just kind of poke around and just learn a little bit first, kind of in the information gathering stage, if you will, check out the Adulting is Easy podcast. Check out some of my blogs again at realadultingiseasy.com. And if you're going to do me any favors today, follow me on Instagram at adulting is easy real because I am lacking there. And I'm on Twitter <laughs> at adulting is easy, which not not lacking as bad as Instagram over there. <laughs> Listen, I feel like you're focusing your energy on the right places, which is buying real estate and building an empire. I'm curious though, do you ever see yourself getting to a point where you're just going to sell all the properties, live off of all of the cash that you've made and just like be a real nomad hopping from, you know, Airbnb to Airbnb for the rest of your days? I don't know. Do my husband and I talk about that? Did we talk about it this morning when we were talking about doing a $20,000 structure repair to this new property? Did we talk about selling all of the properties and never doing it? Yes, of course. What I think we'll do before we would sell is we would get property management or mm. a personal assistant, somebody to help me out with some of these things, outsource more, stop doing the maintenance ourselves. I think we would take that step first. But the best thing we could do, we don't have kids. Maybe we will. I'm not sure. The best thing we can do is die with our properties. <laughs> I mean, get the stepped up basis and then pass it on and let other people sell them. So that's kind of a morbid way to game the tax man. But I think we'll outsource more. But yeah, of course, of course, it's an option. I think probably what we'll do, we have four properties. What I would like to do is sell two in a few years, pay the other two off, really get that cash flow up. It's not a great, obviously, really not a great cash on cash return at that point, but get the cash flow up and also at the same time, decrease the amount of work that the portfolio is. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting how you can use real estate in so many different ways to build wealth. You know, I love the idea of house hacking. I didn't even, you know, it's just been a lot of rebranding that I've seen over the years where you'd call it a roommate, it's house hacking now, it's sexier, you know, this whole idea of owning a duplex or a triplex. I always felt like that made sense to me, but I think a lot of the psychological stuff is what stops people. This idea of like, oh, but I don't want to live with somebody or, oh, you know, like I don't want to make these short-term sacrifices for the long-term vision. And no. I think that's how wealth is built. You got to kind of get a little uncomfortable so that you can go live the dream life later. Yeah. I mean, you're, I understand you don't want 2 a.m. toilet calls of which I have had exactly zero, <laughs> but do you want to work till you're 70? Oof. That's, that's the choice that you're making when you say things like that. Yeah. Lauren, I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for all of your knowledge and thank you for showing up and, and sharing it too, because you know, you could just be out here acquiring real estate and doing your thing and kind of keeping it to yourself, but you decided to show up and and uh, help out your community. And I'm so here for it. And we need more voices, especially women who are doing the damn thing in real estate. I'm so over the bro finance real estate bullshit because there are ladies kicking ass and you're absolutely one of them. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Thank you. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you are ready to take your dinero to the next level, sign up for our free 14-page guide, The Financially Lit Latina the ultimate blueprint for becoming poderosa with your dinero. This 14-page guide includes our best tips on money mindset, budgeting, debt repayment, career, investing, financial independence, side hustles, and more. And you can get it completely free. So to get your copy of the Financially Lit Latina, just head over to yoquierodineropodcast.com slash start. That's yoquierodineropodcast.com slash start and start transforming your dinero story today. Until next time, stay empowered, stay inspired, and stay poderosa. On the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast and associated entities, all information provided is for general information purposes only and does not constitute accounting, legal, tax, or other professional advice. Listeners should not act upon the content or information found here without first seeking appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. We assume no responsibility for information contained on this podcast and associated entities and disclaim all liability with respect to such information, including but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions or misleading or defamatory statements usage of this podcast and associated contents constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer